Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. Welcome to our podcast that we're having today. I'm Will Ginobili. I'm the president of the Osteology Foundation. And we're very fortunate today to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. Myron Nevins, who is a, an honorary board member of the Osteology Foundation. And he was also one of the founding board members of the Osteology Foundation when it, when it started. And so Dr. Nevins has a very distinguished career in periodontology, a private practice, also in academia. And so just as a little bit of a background on Dr. Nevins, he's the past president of the American Academy of Periodontology. He's also the past president of the Academy of Osseointegration Foundation. And he is currently serving as the editor-in-chief of the International Journal on Periodontics and Restorative Dentistry. And so as a part of this, and one of the aspects that I've always admired about you, Ron, is that you've really built together this unique blend of the scholarly aspects of periodontology in your role as a, uh, and you're currently also an associate clinical professor at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine and previous appointments at Boston University, but also having a very busy and highly successful private practice career. And so, Ron, first of all, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. And uh, so, you know, in our, in our conversation today, you know, Ron, I think as we, you know, our listeners who are here with us, uh, you know, you're really an inspiration to many young people looking at this blend of academia and private practice. And so could you share with us how your career started as a young uh you know, periodontics resident. I know you had trained at Boston University in your perio training, and this is where you really started to build your career. And if you want to share this with us. My introduction to periodontics occurred during my time at Temple University. A colleague from the University of Pennsylvania had a program on Monday afternoon for us on periodontal prosthesis. And his name was Morton at uh, Amsterdam. He was kind to me because I was one of the few people in the room that was really tuned into what he was saying. I think there was one other person in 130 that had any interest in periodontics. But this was 1965. It was a developing specialty. Mm-hmm. And uh, he invited me to uh, come on Thursday nights to the University of Pennsylvania because they had a clinic for the residents. And I behaved myself properly. And then he began to invite me to attend his practice on Saturdays, which he mm-hmm. practiced. And he continually was really wonderful with me for nothing, for no gain for him. I was. And I would thank him profusely. And finally, one day he said, let's have a cup of coffee because we have to straighten something out. 
I don't want you to thank me anymore because I have an ulterior motive. I'm doing this with you because this is going to commit you to doing this to a next generation of people that are getting started. Well, from there, uh, I did graduate and I was uh, accepted immediately at Boston University for my residency. And within six months, I met up with another man by the name of Jerry Kramer. He liked to be called Mel. And we got along wonderfully. And one day he said, when you come in, when I, when I come in next week to teach, because he did on Wednesdays, I want you to have a patient that needs surgery in the maxilla bilaterally. Well, that was Wednesday. I spent Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the hospital examining everybody from the people that cleaned the floors to the nurses. I found somebody. And I spent all day Sunday removing the calculus in his mouth. And then I brought him back Monday to check. <laughs> and Tuesday, and now it's Wednesday morning, and uh, Kramer came in. He said, do you have the patient? I said, I do. He said, great. Did you anesthetize the patient? I said, I did. He said, well, let's go. And he made it known that he was closing the door and we were going to be working. Don't bother him. And he did a surgical procedure in the maxillary left. It was unbelievable. Even today, I would say it was good a performance as I've witnessed. And he was teaching me how to do a partial thickness flap, which I had never seen before. However, what he didn't know was that my family... My mother's family were in the slaughtering and livestock business. And I had to learn how my job there in the summer with no air conditioning was once the animal uh, had been killed, it would be on a uh, track on the ceiling and it would come to me to skin the animal. And I paid a heavy penalty every time I perforated a hide, which was every hide I perforated <laughs> that I removed, until I paid one of the other uh, people to teach me how to do it. And he showed me that he could make an incision and hold the skin, and then you always cut to the fat. You never cut to the, to the flap. I never perforated another hide. And now I'm watching Kramer do this, and he stood up abruptly and said, okay, you do the other side. And all, it's, all I'm thinking about is I know how to do this. <laughs> I think in 90 seconds, I made the flap. And he just stood there and said, my God, where did you learn how to do this? And at that age, I was almost anything would come out of my mouth. <laughs> and I said, I just watched you. You just taught me. He stood up, he left the room, he told me, finish these and I'll be back. And by the time he came back, I had finished his left side and was almost suturing the right. This was like maybe two hours later. And he said, what are you doing Thursday? And I said, well, I'm going to, 
I'm here. I get here at seven in the morning. If I'm lucky, if I get home by seven in the evening. And he said, well, I want you to come to my new office next Thursday. And I said, I would love to do this, but I'll get killed if I do this. And he called the dean and he arranged this and I was able to go there. But even he was, he was becoming the chairman within two or three months. And I had a wonderful morning watching him treat patients. And then we went to lunch and he said, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And I explained, I'd have dinner with my wife. We were certainly on a limited budget. And he, he said, see if, she, if she'll mind if we stay and have a, a cocktail and talk for a while. And part of the talking was he, he said that he, what do I think about coming into practice with him? And uh, I, th I thought it was great, but I, I wasn't sure with Marcy. So I said, can I give you an answer next week? At least let me tell my wife what I'm right. doing. Because neither of us had any family that, anywhere near New England. And uh, she agreed and I told him and I, started in the office on Saturdays. Uh, that fall, I used to play uh, touch football on the weekend. And on this particular day, I was lying in bed because I was half dead from it. We really played for keeps. And the phone rang and it was Kramer telling me that, you're not gonna believe this, but I just got off the phone with Henry and you're going to have to be in the office the whole week. And I'll be there with you. And I said, what happened? He fell over the tennis uh, net and he broke his arm. Okay. <laughs> so, so then I, I had this unbelievable experience of being the only person learning from him. <laughs> and by the time my class graduated, I was really beginning to run a practice. There was a third person who left because I think he and Kramer were having a problem. And I was uh, so over my head with love for what I was doing that I could just work indefinitely. And we starting that fall, I was full-time in the office and half-time on the faculty, which means that from when I woke up Monday morning till I went to sleep Saturday night, I was involved with periodontics and I loved it. I was having the greatest time. But then we had two children the same year. <laughs> uh, at that point, we took another person in the office and I was able to not be there on Saturdays anymore. Yeah. So, it yeah. Was, yeah, so Ron, this is, uh, oh, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think this is a wonderful story that you're highlighting in terms of, you know, the mentors that you had in your career. So talking about Morton Amsterdam and then Jerry Kramer, two individuals in their own right as master clinicians, and you you being viewed as a master clinician uh, to this day, so well recognized. And I think this story, the one part I, I, I am you know, really inspired by listening to this is that you had mentors that seemed to really 
see your talents at a very early stage and then truly believed in you. And, uh, you know, is that an aspect as you, as you think about the people that you mentor and that you've helped in, in their particular careers, uh, you know, because you've had a long list of people that you've, you know, inspired over the years. I can you know, mention myself as well, uh, but how that had affected you, you know, working with such wonderful individuals like this in your career. It really set the table for me. Mm-hmm. And starting that first year, we, I developed, I had seen it at Penn, and I developed a treatment planning seminar. And I did it together with a colleague who was finishing that same year, uh, Howard Skurb, who's a precedentist. And mm-hmm. we had very big classes. In fact, we finally left BU in 1979 uh, after the Dean, Henry Goldman, uh, another uh, valuable person in periodontics, um, retired. And the new Dean was a pedodontist and really did not understand what we were doing and was, just made it impossible. So um, we left the school in 1979, the whole department uh, left and the entire prosthetic department left also. So it was really a problem. But uh, at that time, we had 25 residents in one class. Mm. So if you, I, I was there for, I think, 13 years. And in those 13 years, I had access to an awful lot of young people going out mm-hmm. into the field. I think a lot of them caught the same disease as I had. <laughs> I mean, they loved what they were doing. And not everybody, but you know, there are different levels of capability or talent with surgery. Uh, it's like with art. But uh, it was... Uh, a great period of my life. Uh, in practice, I, although Kramer gave me a whole lot of patience, these were the people that didn't keep their appointments, <laughs> didn't pay their bills, or had a dentist that you couldn't depend upon the restorative work with. And I realized I had to develop my own referrals, which came fairly easily because there were very few periodontists north of the Charles River at that time. I don't think there were 10 people from there to Canada. And at that time, when we left, we uh, two big events in my life occurred. One, a person who I got along pretty well with. Uh, I don't know how well Kramer and he did together, but he approached us about wanting to, uh, whether we would be willing to meet with quintessence, perhaps to write a book. So uh, the owner of the, or the publisher of quintessence came to Boston and we met at the Ritz Carlton. A private room was arranged and 
the gentleman who arranged all this loved to eat, so he had amazing amount of food. And uh, he proposed, he was proposing that we write a book, but neither one of us wanted to do that. And we challenged him with the idea of a journal. He thought about it a little while. I was in uh, the south of France. Marcy and I were there and he called me and said, I want you to fly to Paris. Can you do this was like on Thursday. I want you to be there Saturday night because we're going to discuss the, the journal. So I, we flew to Paris and we uh, met with the person who would run the French. It was going to be six different languages. And pretty much came to grips with it. And then he, about two weeks later, he flew to Boston. And we had big lobsters on, uh, in Marblehead. And there's a park there. And the park is still there that we signed the contracts. Neither Kramer nor I had ever uh, been a journal, <laughs> had any experience in maneuvering a journal. And uh, sometime not too far from that, we flew to Germany to learn how to do what we were doing. And this was the birth of the International Journal of Periodontics and Restorative Dentistry. A uh, need for the journal was the difficulty of getting a paper published, a, a clinical paper published in the Journal of Perio. And if you did, you had to back off on many things before the editor would publish it. Mm -hmm. And this opened the door to the dissemination of a, a lot of uh, information. And uh, really, I think for a lot of people, opened their minds and to new therapies. Uh, at the same time, we had a big following by that time with continuing education at school. But now we weren't at school, so we opened the Institute for Advanced Dental Studies. And it was an immediate success because the same people that come to BU were coming to see us, so they would come to. And uh, that lasted for about 20 years until with the introduction of implants, there were so many courses that it just became too complicated to push ahead with it. In 1984, the Academy identified three or four people to go to uh, spend a week with Branamar. For me, it was the beginning of a relationship that lasted until he passed away. In fact, I wrote the tributes to him for, uh, I think, both PRD and Journal of Area, or for uh, maybe it was the Jomi magazine. I forget which ones that I did. Mm -hmm. I had done my first dental implant in 1966 as a resident. And uh, I, what we had, what we could do with implants did not have the predictability that we have today. 
So it really had to be a case that demanded an implant before I would do it. But suddenly this opened the doors and we began teaching uh, implantology. We were developing it for periodontics. In a year before, I was just becoming the president of the AAP. And a month or two before, there was a big meeting in Washington, a government meeting, and the oral surgery uh, specialty announced that they're the only people capable of doing implants. I challenged them with that, and they promised they would rediscuss it that evening, and they didn't back down from anything. So I told them to be prepared. <laughs> and. Uh, Immediately, I was able to arrange with uh, Oflecom and George Zarb, because we were teaching this at, at the Institute as the three of us together, that we would teach all of the graduate directors in America. And we did half of the Eastern half were in Boston and the Western half were in Los Angeles. And uh, then we had to, move with the ADA to get permission. So unfortunately we added the extra year, which they thought was necessary at that time. Uh, somewhere in the early nineties, I was asked by the FDA, along with uh, Danny Boozer to uh, pay a visit, <laughs> of course, not exactly voluntary, to show that implants placed in regenerated bone would be strong enough to support mastication. There were two people there from, uh, I can't remember the name of their business any longer, but Cambridge, Massachusetts. And one of them was the person that had isolated uh, BMP2 this was Genetics Institute. This was Genetics Institute. Genetics Institute. Yes. I just okay. I, thank you. And sometime after that, maybe two or three weeks, I you know I had to make a presentation there showing that we could do this, and Dan did the same. Um, I got a phone call. Would you please come and discuss this with our decision makers because we're just doing long bones. We're doing nothing in maxillofacial. Uh, I had a meeting with them and we decided that the tests would be uh, sinus lifts because it's a non-natural bone forming area. And if we could grow bone there, that would be better than fixing a bone. And they arranged for, we researched which animal would be closest to the human selected the alpine goat of all things. And uh, we did a study with a few animals and we grew bone. And with that, the FDA let us do a pilot study of a dozen people and we grew bone. And then we did a dos dosing study in RCT and that worked. And finally we did the uh, big study Ron, let's pick up. I think that you've 
you know, I'm curious through is very exciting. And I think in terms of your career, how it developed uh, in Philadelphia, going to Boston, the development of the journal, how you took on a leadership role to implement implant dentistry into periodontology and how you had to really collaborate and work very well with a variety of communities so that it could be embraced in periodontology, oral maxillofacial surgery, collaborating with restorative dentists. And I think in your role as an, as an editor, also in a journal that looks at interdisciplinary care, I think this is one of the aspects that you've brought to many in our field on how critically important this is in terms of having this collaboration with quality specialists and working with generalists in the provision of clinical care. And uh, Ron, so this has been an amazing career as you think about how you've been able to continue to reinvent yourself in many different levels, giving us the example of the use of growth factors, your work with uh, you know, these biotechnology companies on the use of growth factors, regenerative biomaterials, and more recently working in implant dentistry. And you know, one of the aspects I would maybe like to leave with our, our listeners here with us today is that you've also, with all this interdisciplinary expertise that you bring, that you've always embraced, uh, you, you lecture actually quite frequently on, you know, saving the tooth or placing an implant and maybe, you know, leaving with us uh, in this podcast, you know, your view on this balance, because in today's day and age, it, it tends to be a challenge um, with the expediency of tooth extraction and being able to place an implant versus in many ways, it's a more challenging situation to save a tooth, but something that can last for the life of the patient as well. So do you want to give us a little bit of a reflection on your philosophical approach uh, for individuals in the field? Because you've really, you've got a, a, a long view that many others do not have and seeing how the evolution of these fields. At this time of my career, which is certainly getting to the dusk, uh, I witness too many instances where teeth are being extracted that easily could be saved. Maybe not a single tooth, but I'm even thinking about an arch. I, I believe my father was a dentist. And one of the, one of the from a different era. He graduated the uh, University of Pennsylvania in 1934. So we were in two different worlds. Uh, the, one of the things that I carried from him was before you do something, ask yourself, what would I do if it was in my mouth? Or as Jerry Kramer once said at a major meeting, what would you do if it was your daughter? It, I think in some ways, some dentists feel that it is much easier to remove the teeth and place implants 
is especially in some of the newer thoughts where you can just use a small number of implants. Um, it's easier than making the teeth, uh, having endodontics in a tooth. And, uh, I mean, there are teeth that there's no way in the world anybody would extract in my mouth. And I think we're going overboard. I'm sure there's a thought of um, it's easier to earn a, a reputation putting a, a uh, not a reputation uh, to earn a living putting a lot of implants in than it is saving the teeth. I think I might challenge that one, but uh, yeah. I, I do think that it exists today, and we're probably going overboard with some of the things that we're doing. Um, I suggest to every one of the, I continue to teach at Harvard. I started, we passed over this, but I started in the early 1990s and I'm still there and I'm still enjoying my relationship with the people that <laughs> I've practiced longer than the age of the people <laughs> are studying. Uh, I think that uh, you need to really have a goal, a beneficial goal for the patient first before you work, before you begin thinking about the financial reward at the end. And we can do a lot to save teeth. And if I was the patient, I would be very reluctant to make the change. We have, we can do things we couldn't do before. If between uh, bone morphogenic protein, uh, especially uh, platelet-derived growth factor, both recombinant, they are, they allow us to to do procedures predictably successful that we used to think were a miracle when we did. And they've been published in a lot of uh, books. Certainly I have contributed to the literature of periodontics. And recently we finished uh, with a colleague of Hong Lei Wang. We put together a new textbook, which I think pretty well says what I just said, that you, you can't, there's no reason to, to do what's being done in some instances. And it, I can't say it's all the fault of one specialty or another. I just think that uh, in dentistry, it, it's a fantastic thing that what we can do for patients with implants. But we, as a profession, need to be selective and do the proper things for patients. We heard a, a speech this morning. It's very apropos for medicine because what's in, recorded in one hospital goes to the other hospitals. And in dentistry, what happens in one office stays in that office. And it's a, a very, even if you're keeping great records, they tend to, not be passed on as well as you'd like. I mean, we receive patients with 
the only thing that we receive are maybe four bite wings. I wouldn't have traded the opportunities I had for anything, but I, I want to get one last thing in. I had no plan. When I said yes to Kramer, we had no children. When uh, I went to the FDA that time, I had no thought in my head about going back to doing any kind of research. But because we published the papers, other companies asked if we would. As soon as I finished actually with the BMP, we, uh, I had done a couple of human block sections for uh, Sam Lynch when he worked for OsteoHealth. And he came back to me to work with him with this. So for a period of 10 or 12 years, research really uh, became a big part of my life. Clinical research. I mean, it's not, I don't want to overstate this. I'm not a, in a research league compared to what you're doing. But I, I think we've made a pretty good contribution with a lot of the things that uh, we've accomplished. Okay. Well, Ron, these are some uh, beautiful words in looking at your philosophical approach that you give to your patients and what you've been able to share with the, the whole global periodontal community as it relates to periodontology, implant dentistry, interdisciplinary care, clinical practice, and academia. It's certainly been an amazing odyssey in your career. Uh, that you've inspired many people for generations. And so I would like to thank you for your time today at the AAP meeting here in Chicago. And I would like to encourage our listeners uh, to tune in again for more of our podcast series with the living legends within uh, oral tissue regeneration. Thank you, Ron. Oh, my pleasure.